Previously on TNDP Presents A Muslim Life, we were joined by Brother Khaled Mustafa who was sharing with us his journey towards Islam after growing up in a life of violence in the Roxbury, Dorchester area, Boston, Massachusetts in the 60s and 70s. Here is part two of that podcast. So I became the manager of five departments within the plant from um, part-time sorter, but and because the, the years had passed, the, the new people really didn't know about because I didn't lie in my my my, my application. They didn't know, but they used that as an excuse because I was I got taken away. They used that as an excuse to terminate. So I, I lost I lost my job. I sold my house for a dollar <laughs> to get out the get out of the marriage, and. Uh, was it. versus people that had degrees. So I'm like, all I gotta do is learn this technology. So I just focused in on learning the technology, getting the certifications and all that kind of stuff. And and I was really frustrated with the system because they had all these programs to help you. I was one of the, I was in one of the most famous programs and I was telling them about you know, the job I lost and, and I, was a, I was the plant manager on the fire department. I think I was making like $32,000 a year, right? And this guy looked at me and he says, well, you might you just have to face that you might never, ever make that kind of money again. I was like, I'm in the wrong place, man. <laughs> like, 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 like that's a lot of money. Yeah. I was like, wow. I'm in the wrong. I was like, you, there's no way you can help me. Because <laughs> like, like, whoever put you here to help me, you can, there's no way you can help me. So that's why I had to really, I had to forge my own path. That's why I started doing, started studying the technology. Um, I used to actually go up into MIT and sit in there to study because I had to get that kind of energy of people studying and learning. Yeah. And I was just starting knocking off the certifications and starting doing it. And then my career really started from there. Is that so that's when you started uh, WiseEye? A little, it was a little bit of time after that, yes. But okay. I started WiseEye, again, because one, I was unemployed and I needed to do something. Right? So it, it really just started off as 
as my way of generating revenue um, and keep it keep it moving forward. Unfortunately, the requirement, uh, and I think that's why YSI really has never really taken off, the requirement um, of being on parole, especially as a lifer, is you have to be employed. They don't want to hear that, you know, I'm struggling to build a business stuff. They don't want to hear that kind of stuff. So I've always had to, like, put that on the side burner. And, and that's when I got um, a job at the um, Urban League as, as, a, as a, a technology trainer at the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. And from the, in, in the Urban League, I went from as a part-time trainer, and I became the, the manager of IT, the facilities manager, and the workforce, I mean, I'm the, I'm the business development manager. Let's talk about your family life with your kids. How was parenthood? Do you, did you have any leftover, you know, elements from your own childhood that you had to get over? Well, I think, well, let's, let's clear this up. I think Alice Long was critically, essentially important mm-hmm. because it formed my disposition to things. Uh, and it allowed me to not react to things how people normally would react. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't respond to loss or injustices by acting out. So that violent streak is is gone. It was gone. Not I, even I, a shadow. I, I gave it up. Matter of fact, well, as once once I solidified my reputation, I didn't really didn't need violence no more. Yeah. You know, and as I got educated, then I learned how to communicate with people. Whereas before, I really didn't communicate. It's still, I'm still really, um, until recently, because of circumstances, I really still was a very introverted kind of person, right? So, you know, it's like, this is the way I am. Either you like it or don't like it. I don't really care if you don't like it. So I really didn't communicate with people. But as time went on, and you're doing time, and you start, and you, you're doing all those years, and you see people coming behind you, then you realize that, it's not really you that's the problem. Especially with the insights of Alice Long, you start to realize there's bigger forces at play. Hmm. You know, and so that kind of changed me. In, in, I started learning and studying and reading. And of course, I would try to pass forward those insights of, of my experiences and what I was learning to study. And that really definitely due to being in the hole, reading the Quran cover, to cover without having other people's interpretations trying to dictate. Hmm. So I, I moved on that insight because I believe that I earnestly turned to a law for guidance, not people. And, and whatever insight I received, I took it as valid. So I was, I was very... I felt that my experiences were for a purpose and a reason, even though I could not see or understand or comprehend what that reason was. So giving was was extremely important. So yes, the violence, and I realized that I, you know, I didn't, I, I, I didn't. In some cases, as I get older, I, I regret that I gave it up um, because I think I, I'd have been healthier. Um, but overall, the initial purpose of that violence, I really didn't, I really didn't need. And I, but I say that, but it's really not true, because what even even though I I gave it up as a person, 
even I still met people, people was like, I can sense it's there. Like, I can sense, like. You got some darkness. Right. I can, right. So, so, I, so really, you start to realize that you, you don't need it, but that's because you already have it. So you start believing that you don't need something that you already have, and everybody knows you have it. So it's not really that you don't need it. It was, it, was, it was put there for a purpose. It's a matter of maturing and not staying there, not staying in that, that ignorance, but leveraging the benefit of it and moving forward. And that's what I all constantly try to do, leverage the benefit of the experience and how can I move forward? Leverage the benefit, move forward, because there's a lot of ugliness. So yes, so Alice Long for me is, is critically important to that whole process and, and really that sincere relationship with, with the um, originator of creation. It's extremely important for me. It's, it's still extremely, extremely important of everything. It's like my relationship with the originator of creation tops everything. People can say what they want to say. People can do what they want to say. That's it. You know, um, I call that my sincerity of intentions. So what happened was when when, when this issue was going on, then when I refused to really be a subject to my first wife, what she did was she put a um, restraining order on me uh, that prevented me from being within 100 feet of my children. Wow. So yeah, after that, done easily too. very easy. Matter of fact, all she had to do was say like, boom, that was it. And um, so I, I, man, that's I, could, painful, I man. couldn't have no contact. So, I have still today, that's, and that's why I wrote the first book, Character is Fate, because I could not interact with my own children when I have it. I haven't interacted with my children for decades, you know, because it's so easy for her to say something. If somebody says something, that's all they got to do is say it. Because of the predicament I'm in, if they say it, I'm guilty until proven innocent. That's how it is. That's just the reality because I'm, 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 I'm carrying this parole. I'm carrying this life sentence. I'm guilty. How old are they, your children? Oh, man. They're probably 30, late 20s, 30s now, somewhere around there. So I, I have this conversation all the time. And, and of course, not wanting that conflict to come back because it's, it's there. And that was part of my petition and my hope of also um, having the parole terminated so then I can start interacting with people on an equal basis. Yeah, I don't always have to be like, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't say this, I can't say that because of my predicament. Yeah. I can actually be whole. And, yeah. and that's my, my, my battle is, my struggle is to be whole just for a little bit in this life, you know. Yeah. What, what does it taste like to be whole? I have no idea. Because there's always something holding you. There's always something there. Yeah. Always this force, you know. Um, it's there. It's present. So my my struggle is like, you know, just getting a, just a taste of that, you know. Like, what does what does what does that mean to like wake up one morning and say, "Hey, I want to take a vacation and go down and see my cousin in Georgia." It just go. Because you can't. Right? Can't. Yeah, so you're still currently on parole yeah. from what you did when you were 18. Correct. So I've been on parole over 30 years now. 
So you got to go through a whole like a whole month process process to be approved to go to travel. And then you got to take these paperwork. You got to go to the police station where you go that day. and They got to sign it. That's another whole adventure in itself. You know. So yes. So tell it what is that common? Like someone to be on parole for thirty years. Is parole and probation the same thing? No, probation is different. Probation is when you have a, a, a you have a, a, a so when you, when you're doing a life life means actually for life. Probation is usually um, when you get ready to wrap up your sentence. They'll give you that little time freedom before you wrap it up. That's why some people still are taking probation, and what they do is they wrap their sentence up versus taking probation. Parole is is, is for more longer term. Um, is it common for people to have 30 years on be, be on parole it, for 30 It's not years? common because you can't make it. It's like, it's like, can you imagine living your life like you're dancing on banana peels? It's like, amazing. The odds are something's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, something's going to happen. In, because like, people, like, like, like people interact, you know, something is going to happen. And usually you see people get violated, they go back. So, so they go back for a year or two, and, they, and then they come back out. So now they, so now you got a justification. Well, you know, you got violated, you know. But there really isn't no, I haven't known anybody that a lifer, so, because of course, if you're doing time and you finish doing your time, you're done. You can, you can what they call it wrap up. But when you when you're a lifer, you can't wrap up, right? So once you get to that level as being a lifer, you can't wrap up. So that's how you end up on parole for life. And is that what you currently have? You're on parole for, for life. life, unless I go back. There, there, there is no really forward. Um, and that's, and that's what we're talking. We're going to be talking about just the idea of going forward is this idea of termination of parole that they came out with. Um, yeah, because I mean, at thirty years of not having any major incident. Like how, what how else did they expect you to do? I mean, that's I mean, a good question. I'm still trying to ask that question too. I actually was in um, um, in business. With oh man, I'll be pleased with him. You're in business with your second wife's dad. So I had really built up a, a really strong relationship with her father and her mother. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know. I didn't know nothing about nothing about her. I was next door, like I said, I was, I was staying next door um, to the masjid. That's why when I was homeless, right? that made me not homeless. I was living there, I guess you could say, as I was trying to rebuild my life. So I was very close with the community, working with the community. Like I said, I was in business with, with them doing the Better For You products, and we was really trying. We actually even had a contract, Better For You products, with the prison for like oils and stuff that went in but again we were very straightforward um about the relationship and, and uh, my involvement and then they for some reason they terminate the contract you know i guess they thought i wasn't worthy for some reason but mm. so anyhow um, we, so we did that so those workers in the community knew me very well i was there i was working i was doing it so i guess she was you know looking for a good muslim husband and i was introduced um, to her um, and then that's when I found out that she was daughter your business partner's daughter right so 
Well, they was in total support of it because they already knew me. Her, her, her mother and her father knew me very closely already. So they was in high support of it. So it happened, you know, and um, we got married, um, purchased a home, um, and uh, was going for it from there. And what happened was, and, and, and we are still very close today, because what caused us to divorce wasn't any internal problem we was having with each other. What happened was, you're talking about this person that didn't grow up in the streets, know nothing about that, that you know, lived their life, and it came to a point, because when you're on parole, the rules change all the time, too. So what happened was, one day, and they come by often to check on your home status to see what you're doing. All oh, they come and check on you. Yeah, so you have to check in all the time, and they have to come out and check on you all the time. So I do have, I had this one parole officer because, and I, I talked to them, I said, listen, my wife doesn't really want her sons to be involved in this. You know, like, they don't really know nothing about my past history. How, how old were the sons? Oh, they was kind of young then. Uh, it was young. I don't know. Maybe seven. Oh, really? Okay. All right. So, so they thought it was logical. They was like, okay, that's understandable. So they would actually come by and check on my home when they went around. So that way, I was like, you know, my wife really doesn't want them involved in this part of my life. This is not what. This is not. This is not how she wants them to know. Me. This is not how she wants them to know me. So. I had at that time I had a parole officer that really respected that. And he would come by, he would do his check and say, All right, your house is cool, everything's cool, and all that kind of stuff. But then things change. And I got a different parole officer. This parole officer came by and I wasn't home and she was there. And the parole officer wanted to come in. And she was like, Well, he's not here, right? He said, Well, I want to come in. But so she didn't let him in because she was thinking like, hey, he's not here. You here to see him? But of course, what happens in this process when you marry is they really look at your spouse as being your sponsor. So their thing was, is they said, listen, we could come in his, in his house if he's here or not. And if you don't let us in, we can mandate that he moves out of that house. So she didn't understand just by the fact of marrying me, she had gave up some of her rights as a, as a citizen. Yeah. And that didn't sit well with her. And trust me, I did not want my wife to act like my sponsor. Yeah. So that was going on because she, she was like, no, I, she, could, she couldn't understand, no way she could comprehend that they would actually force her to give up her rights as, as an American citizen. When she had, she said, I, she said, I didn't commit no crimes. Like, why, why do I have to give up my rights? So anyhow, and then that so happened to align with the fact that um, um, her father got sick and her mother got sick. So she ended up moving back in with her, with her parents. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, unfortunately, I'll be pleased with her, her mother passed away. Um, and she kind of took care of the father. 
that was there until um, her other sister stepped in and her father actually moved into her house until he passed away. But so then after that, she just, she just through that by then, of course, we were divorced by then and she was on her path and I was dealing with what I had to deal with. So that's how we kind of, not kind of, not, that's how we ended up separating. It wasn't because of any internal problems between me and her in that sense. It really was because of just the whole changing. And she was like, well, how come you didn't tell me? It's like, how can I tell you this? They, they just changed the rules. Like, mm. uh, there's no way for me to know. There's no way for me to really prepare you for what might come next. Because I don't know what they might do next, what craziness they might come up with next. I just don't know. And then, of course, with the added thing of, of dealing with her parents, it was just really best, you know, in my perspective, and I guess in her perspective too, to really, for us to go our separate ways. Okay, and, okay. And so that's how that went. So then after she got through her bubble and I got through my bubble, we just started communicating again. You know, um, and, and you still have a lot of love for her? Oh, definitely. It's just this, this. When you when you see what it does to other people, you you can't you can't love somebody and watch something that because of you what you did destroy them and just be comfortable with that. You just can't do it. This this is, this penal system, this justice system, has taken something you've done thirty plus years ago and and 45 45 years ago wow and and it's actively hurting other people right. to this day right. to this very day literally to this, to, this, to this very day and they even asked they're like well how come you're not married you're asking me that question you really want to like come on like what, what do you really expect like how do how do you how do you knowingly bring somebody in to this, knowing what it's going to do with them. Now, maybe if I, I found some street smart girl, you know, that knew all the angles and understood the game, right? Mm. You know, but you don't want to live that life, no. More. Right, <laughs> right. Like, so, like, like you want something that's totally separate, just, right? From yeah, you know. Yeah. So they almost like they're trying to commit you to something that you're actually trying not to be part of, because that's only that's only. That's the only person that's gonna be able to deal with that is somebody that, you know, like, hey, I, I understand how it works. I'm mm -hmm. with you, you know? Um, so they become a co-conspirator. And I'm like, no, I've given, I've given that up. I'm, I'm not co-conspiring with anybody. Hmm. So, that's, so that's why today I stand that I'm not married because it's like, I just, I just can't reconcile that. I can't reconcile that. So, for me, what I learned early on in this process, that the only value my life really has is giving to others and taking my unique experiences and my perspective based on those unique experiences and passing them forward. So this commitment to human development and education is critically important to me. You know, and I try to do it all the way. And I realize that you have to be active Things might never be right. They just might never be right. I mean, I could, I could find flaws with everybody, and I could turn that mirror around and triple those flaws and look at myself. So nobody's ever going to be perfect. 
we too often keep looking at each other's flaws versus looking at how can we work together for better. So I just decided to, you know, put those lenses on that I just constantly look for the best. Like, where's the best I can get out of this? Where's the best I can get out of that? Where's the best I can get out of this? I understand everybody's carrying their baggage. And if I can help them lessen that baggage, that's what I'll do. But if I can't help them, I'm not going to leave them off worse than when they first encountered me. And that's a commitment I made to myself. So everything I do and the work I do, so I just don't do technology. I do technology that I think is going to help support and bring people forward. You know, I just don't teach the technology. I teach it in a way like, how can you leverage this to build a career? How do you can you leverage to build your economics? How, you know, economic self-sufficiency. So I, I'm constantly looking at ways of leveraging what I know in my experiences to help other people so they don't have to experience what I'm experiencing. Do people that you work with, do they know that you're still dealing with parole and things like that or you don't, you don't volunteer that stuff? So um, presently, if a person doesn't know, it's because they decide to put blinders on and not see it. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for them not to know because I wrote books, right? Hmm. You know, in the books out there. And, um, and, I, and as I move forward, so earlier on, I was concerned about people finding out and then leveraging that against me, and I end up going back unjustly because of that. However, you start getting older, and you start getting older, it don't matter. Hmm. It just don't, like, it don't matter, hmm. you know, because if I didn't really do anything, at the end, a, a law says I will be victorious. So do I believe you? Do I believe a law? So now where's my faith really at? So when you get older, you start to embrace death very differently. You're not worried about trying to build this, trying to accomplish that, trying to do that. We know you're younger. It's, it's all about like building and obtaining. And, you know, when you get older, it's about retaining. Mm. And what I'm trying to retain is my faith. No longer obtaining, retaining. Retaining. Yes, you start you, you start moving into this retaining mode of in and in me materialism is going to decay. You know, so what I'm trying to re retain is my faith. Mm. You know, and uh, my sincerity. I try to be sincere in everything I do. Like when I wrote um, the Frolic's Charisma, boy, there were some Muslims boy that were very upset about that book. I um, can see that. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. but it was a part of me yeah. that needed freedom. So I was a technologist. I did all this. I taught, taught, taught technology. I, I did this. I worked on that. I helped this. I did all that. But it was a part of me that I needed to be sincere with. So for people that don't know, I recommend you go out and purchase the, the Frolic's Charisma. But tell people why Muslims were upset. Because it was candid. And it was um, and not all there. not all Muslims. Some Muslims. Some Muslims. Yeah. Actually, some Muslims really embraced it. Yeah. You know, because there was like, finally, somebody's gonna talk the truth. You know, I get tired. You know, and I talk. I get tired 
when a Muslim comes to people in leadership or elders, they say, I got this problem. And they go, oh, go pray on it. Like, what makes you think the person hasn't been praying, right? Like, like, like why can't we have honest conversations about real issues that we as humans are dealing with? And and how and, and express my experiences of how I dealt with these difficult situations. Yes, we we definitely pray on it, but we have to take action because in, in the Quran it's together faith and good deeds. Not it's not just faith. Ooh, go pray on it. You know we we got to take action and, and we, we we learn lessons through our experiences that can help other people when they're dealing with very difficult and challenging circumstances. So I wanted to be very candid. And also what happened was because of this thing of giving, I've definitely counseled a lot of people, right? And helped them dealing with different situations, dealing with relationships, dealing with their, dealing with their husbands and all that kind of stuff, right? Really helped. Uh, so I was actually encouraged by them to write the book too. What I thought I thought if I said, well, let me publish our communications, they would say no. Like I, I, I thought I was going to get out of it. Un unfortunately or fortunately, they agreed. So the book is not, because I didn't want the book just to be about me as a male and what I'm saying. So the book actually has in there real communications and perspectives of the women that I talked to. So it's not just me talking about what I what I think, what I see, but really uh, the interactive conversations of what actually took place. Matter of fact, some women read it and they thought like, no male wrote this book because of the things that were said was not said from me. It was said from the women that was communicating. Now there were some things that they told me I couldn't put in there, so. I had to honor that, but for the most part, and then some of them have kind of like passed away. I couldn't really, you know, get them to prove yeah, it. Yeah. But everybody I could, all of them said yes, and just some of them said, "Well, clearly you can't really put that in there." <laughs> like I don't, I don't think you want to. I don't think you want to do that, you know. So I took that out. Uh, but but that's how the book was kind of framed. And even though it was candid in that kind of explicit way of dealing with relationships, there was a lot of other stuff in the book. And that's, and that's how I really tell what people are focused on, you know, um, because I, some of the stuff was just really put in there as part of framing the story and, and giving it energy. Yeah. But at the same time, I put a lot of what they call esoteric knowledge in there too. I'm always interested in those who read the book, enjoy the other part, learn from that too, but uh, that come to me and, and we have conversations about the more deeper subjects in there because part of the frolic's personality is to, to be joyfully, you know, kind of like how I am, but dealing with very serious subject content. So even though it's done in this kind of frolically fun way, is really deep and serious conversations that are happening in the book. So a lot of times people, because they expect it just to be a smut book, right? 
they could, I don't understand this book. But then after I talked to them a little bit, they're like, I could go back and reread this book because it was written in that kind of a way. And it wasn't written as a solutions book. Like most books is like, you know, I got the solution, this, I got, it was a conversation. So I wasn't saying like, this is the way it is, this is the way it is, this, this is the way you gotta do it and all that kind of stuff. It was like conversations. It's like, I wanna have a conversation. I'm not coming to you with the answer. You know, I'm not coming to you as the expert. I'm opening up serious conversation. That's why I wanted to have a sincere conversations with people. And that's really was for me, was the intent of that book was to have serious conversations with people and sincere conversations with, with people versus anything else. But some people couldn't get past the, some of the explicitness of it. But it was things that we all deal with, that we deal with in relationships. You know, be it with ourselves, be it with our family, be it with our children, be it with our spouses. And, and it's not given like answers, like you know, a lot of a lot of these books always try to do. But how do you have that conversation? You know, so I, I actually phrased the Frost Charisma as your intimate companion, yeah. because it's something that you can read over and over, and every time you read over, you're gonna find new stuff in there. Um, I can't remember who has it. One of my wife's friends have it, and I read. Uh I don't know, six or seven pages out of it. Yeah, there. It's, it's for adults. We'll say that. <laughs> oh, it's definitely for adults. It's for adults. <laughs> it's definitely. Um, but it's not like uh, it's not pornographic. No, it's not. Right. And I think people kind of like need to like. We're talking about Muslims here. Muslims aren't going to just write in just like lascivious. Like it's not as. I think people haven't. Uh, they might have heard or saw one um, excerpt. And assume the whole thing is just right. that, and it's not. It's not that. It's, it's not. not. So I think people need to give it a chance and not listen to just what somebody said they saw one time. Right, and you can't just you know, take. You just yeah. can't take one paragraph out of it and say this is indicative of the whole book because yeah. it's it's not. Yeah, um, and, 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 and it's intentionally. But I do want to be able to say, hey, the door is open for us to have real conversation. Yeah, not. Go pray on it, you know. Or exactly. All that. But, well, go pray on it is real, but we assume that's a given. Well, that's a given. And, We're all going to go pray right. on it. And if regardless. you want that, you need, to go, you need to go talk to an imam or somebody like that, yeah. right? You come to me. I don't, and I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with saying that. No. There's not. No. There's nothing wrong with yeah. it. But yeah. I, me, I am me. Yeah. Right? And there's plenty of people that you can go to that are going to tell you to go pray on it. I, I don't need to re-echo, for me, I don't need to re-echo that. That's something that you're going to hear from every Muslim you talk to. Mm. Pray to Allah, turn to Allah. You're going to hear that. So for me, my thing is like, that area is covered. Yeah. But over here, I'm watching us lose generations and generations of our children because we can't have honest conversations about real life. Losing. Right. Yeah. Of, of real life Challenges that they're dealing with. When are we going to have these real conversations so they they can realize that you know they don't have to fit into some crazy idea mold of what a Muslim is supposed to be, but they can really be themselves and still be a Muslim. Like, Absolutely. if I could write this kind of stuff, I could talk about all this kind of stuff, and I'm telling you, I don't care what anybody say I am a dedicated, sincere, practicing, active Muslim. Period. In the story. I'm gonna. We're gonna end this with two more questions, and they're gonna be a little hard. But I want you to try to to oh. get through it. 
All right. You say they're going to be hard. Well, you know, maybe they're not. Might be easy for you. Might be lightweight. Firstly, your victim, the person that was murdered. How does their family feel? Their do fam- you know? I do. Because they have stood up a couple of times and intervened and said, we don't want him to get any advantage. Like they was, um, they were trying to recruit me um, to work on this program of, 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 of um, technological education of people in prison coming out. They um, was adamantly against it. Mm-hmm. Like, we, don't want, we don't want him to get any kind of advantage. So the, the parents are, are very adamant about that, which I can understand. I mean, they lost their son at a very young age. So I don't, I don't expect them. Was he the same age as you? No, he was younger. I think he was around 14 or something like that. Man. But we was on the street, back then we was on the street young, man. That's just the way it was, unfortunately. Um, so I don't really hold that against them. You know, that you know, I, would, I would want them to forgive. You know, I would want them to understand the real dynamics of what happened. But, yeah. you know, like their friends or were friends with the very people that put their son up to to confront this crazy kid by myself. Like they all knew like this guy was out of his mind because I just the propensity of violence was just so serious in me at that time. And they knew it. But they're friends with those individuals that actually put their child up to do it. But because I was the one that did it. So I, I understand that. You know, I don't I don't really hold anything negative about them. You know, because why? Why shouldn't they love their child that way? Yeah. So I, I don't. I really don't. I, I I really don't. I I think that the issue really comes down to is the judicial system is there to step back from the emotionalism of it and say, based on everything, what is really just? You know. So I know the parents in the family is going to have an emotional position because they they're the ones that lost that life. And guess what? I can't bring that life back. Nothing. I can do all the good in the world. I can't bring that life back. So I, I do not blame or hold anything against them from holding their position. And that's why I just have, whatever comes to me, I just deal with it because I know. I, the bottom line, I was young, all that other kind of stuff, but I committed to act. So I've always tried to be they say man enough to accept what comes with that and I think that's what helped me get through so much man. going to the mental institutions being evaluated going to this door I think what allowed me to get through all that successfully to be able to be successfully on parole for 30 years was because I never tried to skirt my role and my responsibility in this never never so I, I, I do. I, I totally understand. What I'm, what I'm appealing to is the system that says, even though all this is true, we're putting an opportunity to say that you can have your parole terminated if you have proven A. And really, you can petition to have your parole terminated after being on parole one year successfully. Hmm. And it's been 30. 30. Over 30 now. And all the things I've accomplished, you know, in, in working with people and in, in, in building and in doing and helping. There's people in, in, in positions of power today 
that they came under my teaching of technology and they gave me credit. I got, I got some letters of support on all that kind of stuff. All I'm saying is, in my mind, and I know a lot of people will probably really dislike this, I'm saying that the judicial system in their unbiased position didn't believe that I was going to ever be worthy of non-termination of parole. Why did they put that there? Why did they put that carrot there? Right? Why is why did they build this process for me to go from maximum to medium to minimum, right? To pre-release. Why if that states that as an individual I can rehabilitate myself. So even though I can't bring that life back, I have proven myself to a point whereas I can get past that past act. And I could build a life. That's what they put there. So now I'm just saying, what's the issue? You know, what what else can I do? And if there's something else I need to do, shouldn't I at least know what it is? Like, what what does you know um, compelling reason mean? So what are you guys looking for? And exactly. their denial of of of, of me being term, termination of parole, they says. I didn't provide a compelling reason. Now, in my mind, I'm like, 30 years of parole seems compelling enough to me. That's that's beside the fact that, you know, I I went from a part-time sorter to a manager. I went to a trainer to a manager director. Um, I, I taught in community colleges and taught all over the community, helped this work in the community. All, all the different stuff you could pile on um, that I did and didn't get in trouble. They gave me thousands of yearns, no, no drugs, no, no violence, no, nothing. What else can I do to be compelling? Like, what, there's nothing. Now, if you're saying that, well, you didn't run into a house and save five kids in a burning building, right? That would be compelling, right? But I can't control that I'm going to be somewhere and there's going to be a fire with five kids caught in there. So you're asking, if you're saying if, if a compelling reason is something I have no control over, yeah. it's arbitrary. It's, 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 it's a game. So, yeah. so for me, I'm saying like, hey, I need to understand, not just for me, if, if somebody else is blessed to be as successful as I've been on parole, if they'll be parole, there needs to be some kind of resolution on this idea for those who come behind me. You know, so for me, it has become uh, a cause for myself, but beyond me. Because, you know, I'm 60-something years old, you know. I'm, I'm a stone's throw away from retiring, you know. After a while, you know, the only thing I'm going to be able to do if I did get freedom is lay in a hospital bed, right? So it's, it's getting to that point or they call it diminishing return, I think they call it, yeah. is, is getting to that point where it's not about me no more. Yeah. It's about what's right. And I want to understand what's right in your eye. Like, I might have an idea of what's right in my eye, but I'm not holding the decision. So the best I can ask for is what's right in your eyes. What are you guys looking for? What are you looking for? That's all I want to know. That's what everybody wants to know is what is right in your eyes? Lastly, 
You said during this interview that you haven't spoken to your children in decades. Yes. What would you like to say to them if you could? <sighs> Character is fate. You know, um, and that's why I titled the book that we have to hold true to our character. We have to build character. A lot of things are going to happen in life. If we have the right character, the right disposition, Allah will bless us. For me to have this opportunity to talk about my story today with you all is living proof of that fact. You know, so if I had to sum it all up, I, I would sum up the way I summed up in titling the book, Character is Fate. You really have to look at your character and you really have to look at developing your character in a sincere way, not based on what other people think you should be or what they try to dictate you should be or what, how you're supposed to act, but keep searching deeper and deeper <clears throat> into what makes you you because you might find out that something external is influencing you to think that way. And you might want to become better than just being the puppet of somebody else. So you got to have that sincere search for truth. And when you have that sincere search for truth, you'll know that your character of just being like that, or that sincere search for truth is going to determine fate. You can't control what's going to happen to you, but you can control how you respond to things. You know, a lot of things happen that we have no control over. You know, and I, I pray every, I call it, I plead every day and every night to Allah that nothing happens to me that I don't, I don't have the ability to endure. Because certain things I see people endure, I say, oh Allah, I'm glad I don't have to endure that. Man. I'm glad I have to. And I pray to Allah because I know that me not having to endure it is a gift. And that's why I look at, I look at, I don't look at what I'm enduring. I look at, because some people can do. Some people can take physical abuse. Some people could take verbal abuse, right? But you, if you you take that person who take physical abuse, but they might not be able to take emotional abuse. So it might be easy to you. You might be saying, "Well, why can't you? Why can't you just take that?" People are different, so you have to be sincere with yourself. And there's certain things that would easily trip me up, right? That you could do easily, right? So I always ask Allah to protect me from having things happen to me that I cannot um, endure and be sincere about. And, and I find that as long as I can, I have that sincere plead to Allah and I stick with my sincerity, then I form, I form a character that allows me to respond certain ways. And because I respond that way, then I get a different outcome than everybody else. And it's not because of me. Brother Khaled, Ali, Mustafa, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. Um, and I, hopefully this gets to the right ears. Uh, I think you've laid out a, a very compelling life, um, not only for, you know, Muslims who are probably going to be listening to this, but just people all around the world. Um, hopefully it can help you get out of this mess with probation. Well, like, that's really what I'd like to happen. So I want to, with that, I got I got I, I want to, and I'll, so what's happening is, because of um, this petition and being, and being um, denied, um, I had to take on legal pursuit. So I had to legally try to find out. So I had to file in court. Of course, the lawyers 
said, that's all fine and good, but we need X amount of thousands of dollars in, es- money. In, in escrow that we can draw off of to move forward. So that is, ha- is, is happening. And then, right, when that happened, I got a call from the University of New Hampshire. They says, guess what? You have been accepted into our graduate's program for a master's degree. In what? Um, public policy. So then that expense came. So <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, as you know, um, graduate school education is not cheap. <laughs> so I really also set up to go fund me um, second chance request um, in order to try to generate revenue to support uh, my success in both of these endeavors. Can we ask some after hours questions that would be like in the TNDP? Yes. I didn't want to interrupt. Say that again? Some questions <laughs> yes. that were percolating in my mind. Oh, I figured yeah. it would be on TNDP rather than. Okay, well, maybe this will just be on the TNDP edition, but go ahead. What's the okay. questions? Yeah. Uh, so I was really fascinated, overall fascinated for multiple reasons, but you said that you started reading the Quran cover to cover when, the, when in the hole or in isolation. And for me, from a different reason, different perspective, I actually read the Quran, the Yusuf Abdullah Ali translation of the Quran when I was in office uh, boot camp, but I was injured. I was already enlisted when I was off as a candidate, and I, I read it cover to cover, annotations and so forth. So it really resonated. Oh, yeah. with me. I wasn't in the hole, but yeah, yeah. I, I was kind of trapped in my mind because I wanted this outcome. My body was hurt. Um, but I understood. But I didn't take my Shahada until I went to Dubai. I think that was two years later mm. or something like that. So different contexts, but similar. similar opportunity. Yeah. Similar yeah you, opportunity. Could, you, you was blessed with the opportunity. Yes. You know, and I was like, I'm going to be an analyst. And so it was, it was, it was kind of interesting. And I, um, the other thing that resonated with me was this propensity for violence. And that could have gone in a different way. Um, and I, I, I gotta be careful. You know, you know what? I, I understand because you know you grew up here in a, in a certain way, and if people think you're soft, they'll, they'll they'll try to crush you. I think most men will understand that. Like, yeah. When we get our backs against the wall, this is just a man a, a testosterone thing to do. I don't think it's anything crazy. You you flare out, and if you learn that this is what it takes to to survive, then you're gonna do it more. Yeah. Simple as that. It's yeah. not like. You know, you are some weird type of personality. I think that's a very normal thing to do, especially yeah. if you're a guy. You well, know? you know, I, 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 I have to emphasize, you know, um, it, it, it was normal in one sense. I think I took things a little bit too oh, far. Oh, unquestionably. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think I took things a tad more than what... No one's questioning that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, don't, I don't want to downplay. I, I really don't want to downplay um, the seriousness of it. You know, and, and try to act like I'm trying to try to downplay it. You know, I I know I don't know why I was that way, but I was that way, and and it was it it, it was more than the average. But it wasn't um, uncommon. I mean, that kind of no. Person. The behavior itself was yeah. uncommon because that's that's what I was responding to. I was evo- I was responding to violence, um, and and that and violence was respected. You know, and um, I just took it. Number two, but I, I do think that which which I could say today that I couldn't say in the, in the past was that underneath 
it all was just as that brother told me. Underneath that all was a Muslim. And I didn't, when he first said that, like, you're a Muslim. Like, I didn't know what you're talking about. What, are you, what even a Muslim is? I had no idea what he was talking about, right? But when I, when I, start, when I study the Quran and I understand Islam, <clears throat> that characteristic of me standing there in silence versus interrupting him in prayer was something that was given to me, it was not anything that I did to, to um, cultivate it. That was something that was given to me Intrin beyond- Intrinsically. Intrinsically, you know, beyond all yeah. the craziness I was involved in, all the craziness, I, everything, that was, that, that was intrinsic. And that's, and that's where you're talking about realizing that Allah gave me that. It was not, it was, I can't take credit for it. I can't, I can't take credit for being who I am at the core. Do you ever wonder, like, because you were incarcerated so young, that it it saved your life in a kind of way, like, or saved uh, it saved other people's lives. Or saved other <laughs> that's, saved that's what it did. It, it really did. And uh, I, I didn't look at I didn't look at myself as. Um, and I guess that this is another thing common young male. You don't look at yourself as being. Um, Invincible. You look at yourself as being invincible. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I had situations where um, people were so mad at me. They had a knife and they had it stuck to my stomach and they were just trembling. I was like, you can't kill me. And responding that way, they just like backed off. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, you can't kill me. They're like, what do you mean you can't kill you? Like, I got a knife to your stomach. Like, what do you mean? All I gotta do is press. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, people come right. you got a gun. Like, yeah, what's that supposed to do? Like, what do you mean? What's that supposed to do? Like, 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 what's wrong with you? Like, yeah, you you can't kill me. I I, I used to tell him. I says I could only die if I want to die. And guess what? Today I don't want to die. Hmm. So this whole mental thing, you know, it's just. I I I think that. Ultimately, in, re in realism, I probably would have got killed. Um, but that's not what was on my mind. My mind was eliminating all my enemies. Because eliminating enemies meant safety. Right. Correct. Brother Khaled, thank you for joining us today on our first episode of A Muslim Life. Uh, this will probably be broken into two parts because we're at two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it All very right. much. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you so much, Brother Khaled, for sharing your life's journey with us here at A Muslim Life. Even though Brother Khaled has been a prominent educator and entrepreneur and is now going for his master's degree in community development policy, the fact remains that he has spent all of his adult life in the penal system. From the age of 18, when he committed a truly terrible act of violence that unfortunately took another young man's life. He spent 15 years in prison and the subsequent 30, to this very day in fact, on parole, a total of 45 years. Now at the age of 63, he has been unable to leave the state without permission, unable to leave the country, period, subjected to monthly drug tests and home visits, even a monthly fee for being on parole. After 45 years, Brother Khaled is attempting to lift these restrictions by having the parole terminated. 
Brother Khaled is seeking our assistance to help cover the legal expenses associated with lifting these restrictions. He has started a GoFundMe where he is soliciting donations. If you go to GoFundMe.com and search for Second Chance Request, you'll find our Brother Khaled's GoFundMe page. Please consider giving generously. Thank you so much for listening. We love you all for the sake of Allah. Please tune in next time for the Not Dumb Podcast and A Muslim Life. Assalamu alaikum. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Ashhadu an la أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله